people of Israel kept right on doing evil in God's sight. With Ehud dead, God sold them off to Jabin, king of Canaan, who ruled from Hazor. Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim, was the commander of his army. The people of Israel cried out to God because he had cruelly oppressed them with his 900 iron chariots for 20 years. Deborah was a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth. She was judge over Israel at the time. She held court under Deborah's palm between Ramah and Bethel in the hills of Ephraim. The people of Israel went to her in matters of justice. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, It has become clear that God, the God of Israel, commands you, Go to Mount Tabor and prepare for battle. Take ten companies of soldiers from Naphtali and Zebulun. God will take care of getting Sisera, the leader of Jabin's army, to the Kishon River with all his chariots and troops. And God will make sure you win the battle. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed to us this day and do what you have commanded. Amen. I'd like to start today's sermon with a little bit of a pop quiz. Who can name who this is? Go ahead and shout it out. Nice. Yes, this is the Honorable Sandra Day O'Connor. She's the first female support Supreme Court Justice of the United States. She was appointed by Reagan. President Ronald Reagan. Okay, in the next slide. Who can name these three women? Who is the last one? Everybody, I can't, or the middle one. Kagan, Elena Kagan, I heard it. There we go. Yes, the Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elena Kaden, and Sonia Sotomayor. These uh, four women are the four women out of the 113 total who have ever been appointed since the beginning of the Supreme Court. And currently, these three women are still sitting on the Supreme Court. So this pop quiz was an attempt to help you think about how easily we can hear the scripture that was read today and just sort of hear through it. The verse when I said, Deborah was a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth. She was judge over Israel at that time. We hear that and think, sure, okay, female judge. We've been there, we've done that. But there's something different that I wanna point out. This event occurred over a thousand years before Jesus was born. To say that it was atypical for a woman to be in this position, judge over Israel at that time, is still an extreme minimalization of how strange this was. This was the time of patriarchy, of male domination, this was a time when female children didn't even get counted when reporting how many children a man had sired. This was a, a time when laws unabashedly protected men and men's rights over women. So Deborah, a judge, how did that happen? And the second thing I want to point out 
is that yes, Deborah was a judge, but we also need to translate what that means for today. We have to understand that her position was higher than being a Supreme Court justice. She was a judge over all the people of Israel, a ruler, a military leader, as well as someone who did settle legal matters. She was, in one person, the executive, legislative, and judicial, three, all three branches of government. Not only that, but a judge was someone who God, God called upon, who God, God raised up to meet the needs of the people at that time, whatever those needs were. And generally, those judges came from notable families that would have had resources at their disposal, resources like land and money and people to form an army. So how does Deborah fit into that picture? She may have come from a prominent family, but she would not have owned property, nor would she have amassed any kind of army. And as a judge of the nation of Israel, she held the highest office of the, the land. She held the highest office of the land. How did this happen over 3,000 years ago? So not only was this unusual, highly unusual, but Deborah had divine authority, authority that others around her recognized. In the text we read, you hear that Deborah sent for Barak, a male general in Israel's army. She sends for him and says, God commands you. She, Deborah, a woman, speaks for God. She tells a man what God commands him to do. She stands up in public and speaks the word of God, interpreting the word of God in public. How crazy is that? Deborah tells Barak that God will hand over a victory to him if he, if he follows her command. And we didn't read this part, but I think Sam mentioned it. Barak's answer is even crazier. He says, okay, I'll go to war, but you, Deborah, have to come with me into battle. How crazy is that? Now, Deborah, feeling puzzled, tries to tell Barak, that's not a good idea. She says, I'll go, but if I go, you're not going to get the credit for the victory. A woman will. So what's going on in this crazy story? Deborah knows there's something that needs to get done. And she also knows that culturally speaking, it's not her task to complete. Battlefields and army encampments were no place for a woman. At least they were no place for a woman who wanted to preserve her honor. For a woman to be safe, not just from the battle wounds, but from being the subject of discrimination, harassment, abuse, or worse. But the thing is, when God is calling you to do something, it's really hard to say no. She was walking willingly into a minefield. Deborah was finding out that it's hard to be a woman in what has been considered a man's world. When I entered seminary, my very first day of classes at lunch in the cafeteria, a cafeteria first day of school story, 
a classmate joined a group of us who we were, we were already seated around a table, and he sat in the chair right next to me. And he turned toward me and said, I don't believe a woman should be at the head of the church. I was speechless. Here I was, my very first day of school, still a bit unsure about what I was doing here anyway, needing lots of affirmation, still affirmation that came from many of you seated in this very room right now. And here I was, and this guy chose to sit next to me and provoke me. In a room full of many other women, I was the target. And I got home that day, and the first thing I did was share all this with my sweet, sweet husband. And he said, oh, it was no mistake that he sat by you. He targeted you because he knew you would put up a fight. He was looking for someone to push back. And I had put up a fight, and I did push back. But so began what would be a challenge that I would face all the way through my education, my ordination, and even in this past week. A challenge I expect I will face the rest of my vocation and my career. It is hard to be a woman in what has been considered a man's world. Now this church has a pretty long history of having female pastors. So this all may be just sort of a surprise to you. But I want you to think about it for a second. Many of the churches around here in Westlake, the rules of their denomination will not let them ordain women. Not only that, but many of those same churches limit the areas of ministry and the leadership positions that women can hold. Volunteers. And I know it's not just people in ministry who face gender and sexual discrimination. The news right now is full of stories about women facing harassment on the casting couches in Hollywood, in courthouses, in both chambers of the Senate and the House, on both sides of the aisle, red and blue. Women in Silicon Valley choose to stay quiet or if they speak up, they face the end of their careers. Coaches have been accused of abusing young athletes and the list grows longer and longer every day. You look at Deborah's warning to Barack and wonder if she wasn't trying to change his mind. Please don't make me come with you. This is a bad idea. She claims he's going to suffer embarrassment, but as a woman, I have to wonder if she was fearful for what would happen to her, what she would face. Sometime in October, after the news of the many women who experienced di discrimination and abuse at the hands of producer Harvey Weinstein, sometime in October, all over social media, I started seeing the hashtag MeToo sign. It was everywhere. Even if you weren't on social media, the news media picked up the story because it was so prevalent. And the idea was that any woman who had ever experienced sexual discrimination or harassment or abuse should tweet or post, me too. I'm not somebody who's hugely active on social media, and I feel pretty protective about my privacy. And the United Methodist Church has asked its pastors to be very aware of how our image as a pastor, as a church leader, might be perceived on social media. So at first, I just sat back and watched 
as more and more of my friends posted, me too. And every time someone new posted, I kept thinking, her? Surely not. And not her, how could that be? And as more and more people bravely stepped up, I feel, felt like I needed to post me too in solidarity with my friends and relatives. That so many of us had experienced some type of discrimination or harassment was not surprising to me. But what surprised me were the number of Debras who felt called to step out in vulnerability. Because it's hard to be a woman in what's considered a man's world. Friends, I know this is a really, really hard topic to talk about. Writing this sermon has been one of the hardest things I've done in a long time. Sometimes you guys will ask me, so where do you get your ideas for sermons? And on really nice weeks when everything's working well, I'll sit down at the computer and the Holy Spirit just feeds me what I need. And it's awesome when that happens. Other times, the Holy Spirit has to drag me to my laptop while I'm protesting every step of the way. And that's how this week has gone. I knew what the Holy Spirit was prompting me to say, but I had been avoiding it at all costs. And I have this habit when I'm avoiding something, I clean. If you look in my office, it is decluttered. All the laundry at home is done. My house is spotless. I even did some grooming on the dog. And that's a chore we both hate. The other thing I do when I'm reluctant to preach about something is I start talking with all of you. And I know this week, if you've stood next to me for 10 minutes, I've said, so, what do you think about this? <laughs> and you all have answered my questions and you've prayed for me which I really, really am grateful for. Discrimination, abuse, and assault of women feels like a no-win topic. The men I've talked to this week, men who I know well and who I trust, they've told me that they feel incapable of bringing the subject up. They feel like they're going to be wrong no matter what they say, so it's easier just not to talk about it. The women I talk to, the women fear being labeled, labeled a feminist or worse. But why are we so fearful of talking about discrimination and abuse? Because conversation and dialogue are the key tools to address this problem. If we can't talk about it, we're not going to be able to do anything about it. And I know for a fact that everyone in this room is somehow, some way related to a woman. <laughs> we all have mothers. Many of us have wives, daughters, or granddaughters. And none of us want discrimination, abuse, or assault to happen to the women we love. So what are we going to do? This past summer, my family was on a cruise ship in Alaska where someone died. And when we first learned of the event, all we knew was that there had been a domestic violence incident. And I went back to my room and I looked at my sweet, dear husband, who I trust more than anybody in the world, the person I go to when I have really hard questions that I need truth, truthful answers to. And I asked him, how can a husband go from loving a wife to hurting her? 
And my dear sweet husband, who I trust more than anyone in the world, turned to me and said, you don't know any of the details. You are assuming so much. You were assuming it was a husband hurting a wife and not the other way around. I was stunned and I looked at him and I said, yes, I am. But statistics and history are on my side. And we went back and forth about this for a while, which is not like us. And eventually his shoulders kind of dropped and he looked down and he said, I am just so tired of feeling like I have to take the blame for men who do things like this. And I know this congregation pretty well. I can look around this room and I guess, I'm guessing there are a number of men out there who are feeling exactly the same way. You're tired of taking the blame for things other people do. Amen. And you are wonderful human beings. Just like my husband, you would never intentionally harm another person or treat another person differently because of their gender. And I want you to know we see you, we know you're there, and we appreciate you so much. In fact, we need you so much. The Me Too campaign produced some really positive side effects. First, it opened up waves of solidarity for women. And it made a space for conversations that I think really need to happen. Some of the stories I heard this week were so compelling. I heard an adult woman talk about her mother asking all three of her adult daughters if they'd ever faced gender or sexual discrimination in the workplace. I heard the story of a father, the head of a business, who's now auditing his employee records. He's taking a hard look at the pay scales in his organization to see if he has been treating people fairly and equally. And the Me Too campaign produced another movement called How I Will Change. It was started by an Australian journalist and screenwriter, Benjamin Law. And this movement challenged people to publicly commit to working against the types of behavior that began the Me Too campaign. And Law himself pledged to donate regularly to a local women's shelter. He pledged to question harassment because not saying anything is as bad as doing it yourself, in his words. Another person responded to him and promised to call out other people who make sexist statements about women even as a joke. Another person commented that he was going to ask questions when he was interviewing for jobs, ask how many female executives there are in the company and what the pay gap is for men and women holding the same positions with the same experience. Another promised to keep showing his three sons and one grandson what it looks like to honor and respect women. I could keep on reading these statements over and over and over again. And when the negative headlines just keep coming in wave after wave, the how I will change is the only thing that gives me hope. At the beginning of this sermon, we talked about a woman named Deborah, a woman named in a written work a woman whose name was recorded over 3,000 years ago at a time when women did not get any recognition. Did God slip up? Did God not realize Deborah was a woman? 
No. God called Deborah as a judge for the nation of Israel. And I'm choosing to believe that God did not make a mistake. God lifted Deborah up to remind all of us in every context and time that God can and will use whomever God chooses to accomplish the task at hand. Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Our God is a God of transformation, a God who wants peace, justice, and righteousness for all creation. A God who wants us to constantly keep proclaiming publicly and proudly how I will change. Amen. <laughs>